So here's where we are. You can't really do a series on culture uh, without hitting the delicate uh, topic of racism. Can you feel that? <laughs> you feel that? Yeah, you can't really, you can't really do a, to- a series on uh, the culture uh, without dealing with this because what we've been trying to deal with for four weeks and another week ahead is how do you walk in the way of Jesus in this cultural moment that you find yourself in? All right, as a disciple of Jesus, how do I navigate the waters that we find ourselves in right now? And so we've looked at some, uh, some touchy, some difficult subjects. Today's one. Next week will be one as we wrap up, I think, next week. But uh, it is a, a difficult, sometimes traumatic issue, and that is the issue of racism. Uh, let me give you a quick definition, and uh, you might come up with a better one, but basically racism is the belief that some races are uh, better than others, and then the actions that then follow uh, from that. And when it comes to racism, it is in some ways amazingly simple, but in other ways amazingly complex. All right? The simple part of it is the ridiculous notion that someone is better than somebody else simply for the mere fact that they were born. All right? You think that that's like, man, you, what did you do to deserve it? You were born. That's all you did. So, and part of it is simple, uh, but part of it is amazingly complex because really every human atrocity uh, has been rooted, not every, but so many of the worldwide human atrocities have been founded on this whole idea of racism and the idea that I am better than you because of my ethnicity. And you can go from slavery here in the U.S. to the Holocaust in Germany, to the Armenian massacre in Turkey, to the, hum- to the genocide in Rwanda, to the Japanese slaughter of six million Korean, uh, Indonesians, and Filipinos. And it's all derived from the leaders and then eventually the followers who believed that they were intrinsically superior to another type of people. And so in our country, there's really nobody in this room that has not been in some way touched by uh, racial issues, all right? Whether you're black, white, uh, Indian, Hispanic, doesn't matter. You have been in some ways impacted or affected uh, by those. Uh, In 1776, our Declaration of Independence, here's what it said. It says that we hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal. And sometimes our country has been phenomenal at that and done well and done much improvement. In many ways, we have failed at that and we are still struggling to fulfill some of that. And so let me just say on the front end, when we're talking about this today, when we're talking about this delicate issue, there's a lot of different places we could go But the biblical principles today we're going to look at are applicable to all races and all ethnicities and all racial tension. Most of the comments and most of the application that I'm going to make uh, are toward the history and toward the challenge of what I'm just going to call black-white relationships. And there's a couple of reasons for that. Uh, Reason number one is African Americans are the only people group in our land who did suffer for centuries of race-based slavery at the hands of white masters. All right, from 1619 to 1865, for a total of 246 years, that was the status quo. And there is, without a doubt, still some residue that still lingers in our society. And then secondly, what you've got is you've got even 50, 60 years after the civil rights movement, uh, we have not as improved in some of the areas as maybe we would have hoped. And all it takes is something in our culture to trigger how the fact that there is such tension right below the surface. Now, some of this might be more systemic than other ones, but there are some systemic issues that have been put in our nation's history and in some ways haven't been completely eradicated. But if you just look back over the last, 
little bit of time, you see things like everything from sharecropping after the Civil War to the Jim Crow laws to uh, redlining, which basically uh, systematically devalued black neighborhoods so that they became basically an urban ghetto. You've got a lot of these different things. And then you also got situational things that when, they, when it happens, then it, it just blows up. Now, in a 24-hour news cycle, this happens almost daily, if not weekly, but there are times when it comes, it, it, it blows up, and it is the story for a number of weeks. And those things ever go from, you know, you, you use the names like Eric Garner, Michael Brown, uh, all of a sudden, even, even here in WNCU, when we've had, or WNC, when we've had, We've had particularly when it's a police-related death, there's all this trauma that starts to come forward. And if you can't relate to that, depending on your age, I'll give you two examples that just talk. I'm not talking about the facts. I'm not talking about anything specific other than the division that still exists in our country. If you go back some number of years, my generation, it, was, it showed in the O.J. Simpson trial. In the O.J. Simpson trial, you look down. Depending on what you thought of that verdict, absolutely it fell right along racial lines, all right? If you were in the black community, you thought that was a good verdict. If you were in the white community, it was like 95% on either side, and it was strictly down racial lines. Even now, if you go back to the 2016 election, you saw white evangelicals vote overwhelmingly for Donald Trump, and you saw black evangelicals vote overwhelmingly against Donald Trump. And I'm not trying to hear to to figure out what that was. All I'm telling you is there was a divide. And in that case, you had people, white and black, that both say, I worship Jesus, I follow Jesus, that looked at something from an entirely different perspective. And so when we look at this text today, what we what the world wants to do, the world wants to, hey, can't we all just get along and can't we just have unity? What the world wants to do, it can't do. And what the church must do, it actually can do. It actually has been empowered to do. So let me say this before we jump into the text. Do not hear me say that racial reconciliation is the gospel. It's not. Racial reconciliation is not the gospel. The gospel of Jesus is the fact that a Jewish man died on a piece of wood 2,000 years ago as the Son of God. He lived the life we were supposed to live, died in our place, took the wrath like the song says, and then rose victoriously from the grave. And if you will repent of your sin and embrace him by faith, you are then adopted as a son or daughter by Almighty God. That's the gospel. But make no mistake about it, racial reconciliation most definitely is a fruit of the gospel. It is an outworking of the gospel in your life. That's true of you individually, and that is true of us as a church. The deeper we go into the gospel, you cannot ignore issues like compassion and justice and these other things. And we're going to see today the text that's right at the start of Jesus' ministry. Some scholars say this was his first public sermon. He just, he just pops a hole in the whole bubble of ethnic superiority. Now, I'm going to give you a lot more than this text, but this text alone, you look at it, he works down there. Now, a lot of us haven't recognized it because of the cultural gap of 2,000 years. That's my job to try to explain it, but the idea is you're going to see right at the start, he says, my people, my redeemed people who I will buy with a price, all right, they're going to come from all different ethnicities. They're all made in God's image, and they are all bought with a price. And when Jesus preaches this sermon... 
they understand what it means because they try to kill them at the end. So uh, I've had some bad emails on Monday morning. I've never had anybody try to throw me off a cliff. But here it is. It's a pretty long text, so I'm going to work through it. And I, pr I promise you, give me about six or seven minutes to work through the text. And then I'm going to just draw application after application after application from the text. The first part of it is the context. And then when we get to about verse 24 and 25, you see it shift and it goes into what we're talking about today. So let's kind of see where we are. Great, uh, great text, Luke chapter 4, 16. It says, and he came to Nazareth where he had been brought up. So this is like, this is, he's been gone for a little bit of time and he's coming back. Most people think first time he's been back since his ministry started, back to his hometown. He's, he's referring to it here in a few minutes as well. And as was his custom, he went into the synagogue on the Sabbath day and he stood up to read. And this wasn't like uh, kindergarten. Basically, he was a visiting rabbi. They would hand somebody a scroll. The rabbi would be able to then read it. And it's kind of like a, a gentleman actually before this service said, hey, my son preached his first sermon. And I was like, that's awesome. This isn't his first sermon necessarily when he stands up and reads. He's done it before. But the idea, this was to honor this visiting rabbi. Verse 17. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. So he unrolled the scroll and he found the place. Don't miss that little section there. So he gets handed a scroll with the prophet Isaiah on there and he diligently and intentionally begins to look for a specific place to deliver a specific message that he wants to give to a specific audience. So he unrolls the scroll, finds the place where it was written, and here's what he finds. It's kind of two places in the book of Isaiah. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant, and sat down. And the eyes of all the synagogue were fixed on him. Now keep in mind, keep in mind, he has just said he is the fulfillment of the Old Testament prophecies. At our church, we talk about, you know what, there's, there's one hero in the Bible, and it's Jesus. The rest of us are villains. And the Bible is about Jesus. It's not about you and I. It's about Jesus, and it's for us. And this is another example of it saying, you know, all those Old Testament stories, they find their fulfillment in Jesus. And amazingly, amazingly, they're not even mad about that. They're like, this is awesome. And what they have in mind at this point is the Jewish people were very oppressed by the Romans. Their whole idea was their Messiah would come, set up a different government, kick the Romans out, and all would be well with Israel. And so they're kind of excited about this, but here's the way the story goes. And he began to say to them, today the scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. And all spoke well of him and marveled at the gracious words that were coming from his mouth. And they said... It's not this Joseph's son, and you can't really tell the tone of what they're saying here, but what you see is kind of like, all right, we're, is this the guy we've seen a whole bunch, and maybe it's turning. And if it didn't turn then, it turns now. And he said to them, doubtless you will quote me this proverb, physician, heal yourself. What we have heard you did at Capernaum, do here in your hometown as well. And he said, truly I say to you, no prophet is acceptable in his hometown. So we're about to get to this text that makes them want to kill Jesus. But let me say on the front end, what Jesus is telling them right here is, listen, you guys like what I'm saying right now. You think what I'm saying right now is awesome because you still are thinking with one ethnicity. 
He said, but I'm about to light you up about how big the gospel really is, and it goes beyond your particular brown skin color. And so here's what he says, and here's what I want to, I want to give you this one. This is the first thought. You confront racism, you actually confront it with the gospel. He's just told what the gospel is going to be about, and now he's going to give you two Old Testament stories that are all about the outsider. And in some ways, you can understand the gospel that way. If you know Jesus, you are on the outside looking in. Whether you're with the minority culture or the majority culture, at one time you were on the outside looking into God's family. And then God saved you and took you from the outside into the inside. That's really what the gospel is all about. And so here, how does he confront it? Let me, get, let me kind of show you these next few verses and then we'll jump in. But in truth, I tell you, there were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah. So don't miss this. He's going back to two stories. He's talking to Jewish people who thought they and they alone were going to be God's people. And what he does is he's like uncovers the fact that, you know what, church is going to be about way more than one people. God's kingdom, Jesus' kingdom, is going to have a bunch of different colors to it. And here's what he says. When the heavens were shut up for three years and six months and a great famine came over the land, and Elijah was sent, this is in the Old Testament, all right? Both these stories are in the Old Testament. And when he says it, he says, Elijah was sent to none of them, but only to Zarephath, which is outside of Israel. And he said to the land of Sidon, to a woman who was a widow. All right, next story. And there were many lepers in Israel in the time of the prophet Elisha. Elisha took over for Elijah after Elijah was done, and none of them was cleansed. In other words, there's a lot of people there, a lot of lepers, a lot of Jewish lepers, but he says there's only one cleansed, and he says that was only Naaman the Syrian. Well, they're ticked off at this. Here's what happens. When they heard these things, all in the synagogue were filled with wrath, filled with wrath, meaning it was uncontrollable rage that he had just transferred the fact that, you know what, what was supposed to happen with Israel is that was supposed to give them humility as the chosen people, and instead what it did, it gave them pride, it gave them scorn for other people, and he says, I'm opening this whole thing up, but here's what they try to do before that happens. They rose up, drove him out of town, and brought him to the brow of the hill on which their town was built, so that they could throw him down the cliff, and passing through their midst, he went away. Now, we don't know if that's a miracle or whatever that is, but uh, bottom line is, he walks away, and what he's trying to tell them is, listen, I'm about to... I'm about to do something that is so emphatically anti-racist that you won't even believe it. You can actually say that understood properly, the New Testament is the most anti-racist text ever written. You're like, well, you gotta tell me more than just right there. Well, I'm, I'm, I'm glad you're here. Let me just, let me go through a handful of them very quickly. First of all, Jesus did teach on this a lot. Now, if you grew up going to church and all you saw were the felt boards and all you saw were these little stories, you might have missed it. Let me give you a couple of examples. Let me give you about five examples just really quickly. John 10, 16, Jesus just preaching and then he just takes a rabbit chase and he says, I have other sheep that are not of this fold. He's talking to Jewish people. He's like, I got other sheep out there and they're not gonna be Jewish. I must bring them also and they will listen to my voice. In other words, you're not listening to my voice, but they will listen to my voice. You ever hear the story about the Good Samaritan? Like, yeah, the Good Samaritan is like top five Bible story of all time. I mean, everybody loves the story of the Good Samaritan. It's about helping those people in need. But what was most shocking about that is the hero of the story was the Samaritan and not the Jewish priest. 
The thing that made him so mad was when the whole thing came around, it was the Samaritan. Now, you and I don't think Samaritan. You and I don't think Gentile. When you think Gentile, just think white guy, okay? I know it's not an exact deal. When you hear Gentile, when you hear Samaritan, just think white guy. Because what happens is in that story, the Samaritans, in their case, they were half-breeds. That's the way the Jewish people looked at them. They were half-Jewish, half-Gentile. So they say, we hate you. We hate you. And when it came to the whole Gentile deal, they hated them. Do you know that a Jewish person was not allowed to help a Gentile lady in the middle of her labor, could not help her. If nobody else was around and he was a doctor, he could not help her because they said, quote, that would bring one more Gentile into the world. Do you know that they actually said that they, they believed, the Jews believed that the Gentiles were made by God for fuel for the fires of hell? I mean, talking about some racial tension there. And so you just go from the Good Samaritan, you can kind of just go on down there. How about when he drives out the money changers? And he said this, my house will be called a house of prayer, what? For all the nations. How about when the 10 lepers get healed? Who does he say came back and thanked him? It is the Samaritan. Think about the epistles, particularly Ephesians and Galatians. That's all about the Jew and the Gentile coming back together. As a matter of fact, if you look at the way the book of Acts goes, just put these in your mind. Acts chapter 2. The gospel is preached to a group of people from 16 different ethnicities, 16 different geographical areas. Chapter 6 of the book of Acts, the church is exploding. Everybody thinks Acts chapter 6 is about deacons, and maybe it is, maybe it isn't. That's certainly the look of a deacon, but what caused that to happen? What caused that? You boil it all down, there was racial tension. They were like, one race is going to actually get more attention than this other race. And so the whole church was starting to get disunified. Acts chapter 13, Luke goes out of his way in the first two verses to mention the leaders of what is arguably the best church in the book of Acts, the, the church at Antioch. He goes out of his way to list the five leaders of that church. And of the five leaders... Here's what it is. You got one from the Middle East, one from Asia, one from the Mediterranean, and two from Africa. One historian said this. He said, the multicultural unity of the early church is among the primary factors that led to the explosion of growth. And here's what he talks about. He talks about the fact that for the first time in these Roman cities, it was kind of like mega cities for the first time. And so all these ethnicities, all these races were together in tight spaces. And so there was amazing racial strife in Rome. But the Romans looked and saw the only place where there was racial harmony and racial unity was in the church. And so the church people are like, the reason this has happened, the reason this is the way it is here, is we worship a Savior who died for all people, for the Jew and the Gentile, for the slave and the free, for the black and the white. And he said, that's what's happening in the early church. And so uh, I know some of you right now, let me just uh, listen, if it didn't, if it didn't dawn on you um, already, uh, I am a white guy, all right? I'm a white guy. I am a white guy. And some of you are saying something because I know, I know you're saying, well, I'm not a racist. Well, I'm checking out. I'm playing. I'm checking my draft. I'm checking my football score, whatever. I'm not a racist. Please hear me, church. This is some ways church-wise and some ways individual-wise. The bar is not for the Christ follower. The bar is not, okay, I'm not a racist. That's not the bar. The bar is not, okay, I'm, I'm not a racist. God's goal is not simply for his church to lack hostility. He wants his church to show what society can't show, and that is diversified unity. That despite our racial differences, 
We are united under one ancestor, that is Adam. We have one issue, one problem, and that is sin. And we have one hope, and that is salvation in Jesus Christ, known through the gospel. Now, I would say this. We as a church have made some strides. Let's be clear. We've made some strides the last five or six years. All right, church experts and historians, all this, they basically quantify a, quote, multicultural church as a church where no more than 80% of the uh, a church is made up of one ethnicity. We're not there yet. But what we have looked at is said, okay, are we at least as diverse as the cities in which God has put our campuses in? And over the last five or six years, thank God, we've gotten at least equal a little bit beyond what WNC is. I mean, WNC is diverse in a hundred different ways. It's not super diverse racially, at least not compared to the places like Houston and Atlanta and some other places. But what you've got to understand is when it comes to the diversity, that's even the way the gospel grew. Listen to these stats. I read these to you a couple years ago. Roughly 20% of Christianity's followers live in Africa, 20% in Asia, 20% in Europe, 20% in North America, and 20% in South America. Every other major religion has at least 80% of its followers on one continent. So Christianity, statistically speaking, is far and away the most diverse movement in all of human history. What we have to understand as a church in Western North Carolina is this. The church is supposed to be a preview of a coming attraction in Revelation 5 and 7. Revelation 5 and 7 is this awesome worship scene, and it says, you know what? You looked out, and I saw people from every tribe, every nation, every ethnicity, every whatever. They looked out and saw that. But the church down here is supposed to be a preview. You know what I'm talking about? Preview of coming attractions? Okay, preview of coming attractions, Lori and I do date day every Saturday, pretty much Saturday till about seven is date day. And one of the things we like to do is we like to go to these, we like to go to movies periodically, all right? And so when we go to a movie, we get there typically early enough, even though you got reserved seating now, you go there because the previews, and when the previews come up, it's classic. You know, the Rambos come up, I'm like, do it, we gotta get there, you know. She's like, nah, and Downton Abbey comes up, do it. I'm like, uh, you know, so we like the preview of coming attractions because when we see it, we're like, you know what? I can't wait to see the full-length motion picture of that. Listen, the church right now of Jesus, or specifically Biltmore Church, what we are supposed to be is we are supposed to be a preview of the coming attraction that you see in heaven when you've got people from every creed, every race, every ethnicity, all worshiping one God. That's what we're supposed to be. That's what we're supposed to be. Now, by the way, all right. Okay, here's my only agreement. My agreement, 11 o'clock. You guys, you, <laughs> do not come with lame clapping, all right? If somebody claps to love your brother, you clap with them or say, shh, it's not time yet, all right? So I will say this. I will say this. Uh, you have to confront this because let me just be blunt. If you're in the majority culture, it's not wrong. I'm going to talk about that in a minute. What I am saying is this. Our tendency, because we're the majority, our tendency is to slide back toward away from intentional diversity. Here's what I mean. I'll give you an example. The leader, arguably the leader of the early church by the name of Peter, the apostle Peter, has this amazing experience in Acts chapter 10. God shows him, not only are all foods good, not only can you eat bacon, but he says, I want you to go to a place, there's this Gentile named Cornelius, and he goes to Cornelius, and the gospel shared, all Cornelius' family gets saved, 
This is awesome. And so Peter starts to hang around the Gentiles. He starts to hang around the white guys. He starts to hang around them, and it's going awesome. But if you flip forward a little bit in the calendar, there's a section in Galatians chapter 2 where all of a sudden the Jews show up, and Peter starts to go, oh, i got to go back with my people. i got to go back with my people. And then the apostle Paul shows up. Imagine the apostle Paul rebuking you in the front of a whole church. And he comes up, and he goes, Here's, it's a great line. He says, Peter, you are not living in accordance with the gospel. You're not living in accordance. He's not saying you're a racist. He's, a, he's saying you're not living in accordance with the gospel. He's like, what, what happened with the gospel? God found you on the outside and brought you in. God found you on the outside and by his grace, through nothing that you did, he brought you from the outside in. So what are you doing acting like your race is superior to that race? And he rebuked him. And thank God Peter repented. And so when we talk about this whole idea, understand what we're not looking for. I've heard, I've heard people say, well, I'm just colorblind. I don't see color. Listen to me. That's not even the goal. God's not even colorblind. You're like, you're going to have to talk about that. Let me give you the second point. We're called to celebrate unity in the diversity. We're called to celebrate unity the unity we have in the gospel in the midst of the diversity. Again, God's goal is not just, hey, don't be a racist. God's goal, God's goal. What did he tell Peter? He says, Peter, I want you to not just not be a racist toward Cornelius. I want you to go and I want you to embrace him. I want you to eat with him. I want you to worship with him. I want you to proactively integrate this into your life. And so uh, how do you do that? Try to give you some simple things here. Give us some simple things. First one is this. Is there some things you need to do to just look in? Just look in your heart and go, do I honestly think that I'm superior or more hardworking or whatever than some other race just because they're a different race? Do I honestly think that? Now, listen, I understand you might have been raised a certain way. I understand that. I understand you might have been raised a certain way where mom talked like this or dad talked like this or, or whatever. But if you're a Christ follower, understand those generational sins can be broken by the power of the gospel and they call you to repent. Because bottom line, this is not, a, this is not some kind of skin issue. As, as Benjamin said, it's not a skin issue, it's a sin issue. And if it's a sin issue, the way you deal with a sin issue is you repent, all right? So it's not about sociology, it's about theology and understanding, you know what, I'm changing my mind about about what the gospel says my brother or my sister in Christ actually is. And um, let me just say this, uh, and I want you to listen carefully. I don't mind emails if I say something dumb, but I don't want to get a dumb email because of what I didn't say, so listen to me carefully. Maybe it's not overt racism. Maybe it's just a lack of compassion and empathy. Maybe it's just a lack of compassion and empathy. And Scooter, before you send me an email, a command, a command of Christian behavior is Romans 12, 15, when it says, weep with those who weep and you rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep, rejoice with those who rejoice. So let me be, let me be clear. When things blow up, and you can just pick any from the last three or four years, when things blow up, what I've heard 
And what you see is our African-American brothers, that brings, especially let's just say it's again, it's a, a controversial a police death of a, a, of a person of color. Our African-American brothers and sisters, it brings to mind some of the racial injustice that has been in our nation's history. All that stuff starts coming back that are very, 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 it's just, it's historical facts. And so when that comes back, there's a ton of emotion and a ton of stuff that comes back. But what I've seen from, I'm just gonna give you the benefit, well-meaning people, when that happens, sometimes we are so quick in the majority culture on Facebook, on Instagram, instead of, Romans 12, 15, weeping with those who weep, what we do is we get out on Facebook and we start linking people to articles. And what about these facts? And what about these cities? And what about this over here? And what about this responsibility? And all this stuff. It's not that those things, that's not a systemic discussion down the line. It's that the timing is horrible. It's that's not the time. The time is to weep and empathize and be compassionate. Yeah, I mean, I can give you, it's so clear on so many other issues. Let's just, let's put it this way. Let's, uh, my, one of my first funerals back in Humble, Texas, we'd first, I'd first gone over there to be senior pastor years ago, was a two-year-old out in Huffman, Texas, across the lake. Some little boy had somehow gotten out of the screen door, sliding door, and, and gone on there and had drowned in the pool. I mean, it's horrible, man. I showed up, you got EMT there, you got parents who just, I was new, so I didn't even know them that well. And man, it was, I mean, it was a horrific scene. How wicked, how wicked would that have been for me to go up to the parents and go, hey, uh, sorry about your child, but you know what, man, if you had a baby gate, that wouldn't happen. Hey, I can show you a link where you can go get a fence around your pool so that won't happen. That is deep wickedness and lack of empathy. I'll give you another one if that's too heavy for you. Let me give you another example, all right? Raise your hand if you're married. Raise your hands up. All right, most of you. All right, so I'm, this kind of be a male-dominated thing, so let me, let me kind of say this up front. Our first few years of marriage between Lori and I, here was a scene that took place I can't tell you how many times. It would go something like this. She would come up to me and she'd say, Honey, I feel that we're distant. I feel distant from you. I don't feel you're prioritizing the family. I don't feel that we're close. I don't feel we're spending enough time together. Okay, for three years. Here's what my reaction would be. You're like, bro, you got to get a clue phone. I had to. Here's what I would say when she would say, I don't feel this. I would bring out my list of facts and go, well, we had a date Friday night, and I, I was back home Monday night, and on Thursday we're going this way. I would get those facts out. Question, do you think that escalated or de-escalated the argument? Okay. What do, you, what do you think? Okay. All right. Ladies, how many of you, when that same thing has happened, have sat back and go, wow, I... After listening to all your litany of facts, I feel so valued. I feel so cherished right now by you. No, that doesn't happen. Part of it is just listen. I want to listen to you. I want to listen to you. And part of what we need to do, part of what we really need to do is do what James says when he says, be quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to become angry. And the idea is this. Help me to understand why you're feeling like this. Show me, show me, show me why you think Show me why you think that that's why. He's like, well, I need to speak. There's a time for you to speak. It's just not right then. It's just not right then. Right then is the time for you to listen. You want to show how much you love somebody? Just listen to what they say. Seek to understand more than you seek to be understood. Okay? Um, 
y'all hear the story, by the way? Did y'all hear the story about the black guy and the white guy who were arguing over what color God was? Did y'all hear that? I don't know if it's a true story or not. Okay. All right. Anyway, black guy and a white guy, they're arguing over what color God is. Okay. So they're arguing. Black guy's like, God is black. And the white guy's like, no, God is white. God is, and they're just going at each other, going, God's black, God's white. God. And so finally, they both die at the same time. They go up to heaven and they see Peter. And they're still having this argument. They're like, Peter, Peter, we're having this argument. We say, I say God's white, he says God's black. It's like, which one is it? Which one is it? And Peter, Peter's like, well, I tell you what, I'm just going to let you ask God for yourself. So he, he brings them into the throne room, and the first thing they hear is, buenos dias, uh, senores. So that's just like, that's the, f- so keep in mind, keep in mind, keep in mind. You got you to gotta look out and figure out, all right, what about, what about, what about my identity? I, I, try, I tried that out this morning, and it actually worked, so we're going we're gonna to stay with that. So here's the first one. Uh, second one is look up. What does look up mean? Look up means the fact that your primary identity is, got, is a Christ follower, is as a Christ follower first. That's your primary identity. It's really what Paul's talking about in Ephesians 3, 10, and 11 when he's like, listen, uh, um, God's making a new man. Let me throw, let me throw a little... Uh, Bible truth at you. Do you know that the color you are right now is the color you're going to be in heaven? Did you ever think about that? Some of you are like, that ain't t- the color you, the color you, you can go to the tanning bed, you might get a little darker, but the color you are right now is the color you're going to be in heaven. Okay. Again, there's not a bleach line up in heaven that you go through so that everybody's some homogenous color. You're like, where is it? Go back, read Revelation 5, read Revelation 7. What does it say? It says they he looks and he saw, he saw people of every tribe, every tongue, every nationality, all worshiping Jesus, all right? That's not universalism. It's not everybody's going to heaven. It's all these Christ followers from all these different places. He saw the diversity, saw the distinction, and the church is supposed to celebrate that. So let me, let me tell you what that looks like. Whatever color you are is the way God made you. Let me say it again. I'm a white guy. Has there ever been a whiter name than Frank? I don't think so, all right? That is as white as it gets. You look in my heritage, it is mostly German with a little bit of English in there. I grew up in Oklahoma and Texas. There's no doubt growing up the way I did, it shaped my taste in music, country and western, food, etiquette, and I don't feel bad about it, all right? I don't feel guilty about it. As a matter of fact, around our house, we sort of celebrate our family. All right, we celebrate, at the Frank family, we kind of celebrate the Frank family. Let me quote Tony Evans, great, great African-American preacher up in Dallas. I've read his books for 20 years. He says this, he says, the first decision all of us need to make is to be what God made us to be. If you are black, say it loud. I'm black and I'm proud. If you are white, say it's all right. No matter whether God made you red, brown, yellow, black, or white, you are, as the children's chorus says, precious in his sight. If you feel any other way, you are saying God failed when he made you. And he makes a whole point. He loves the point where he's like, listen, what we, what we tend to say, we talk about all this stuff. It's like, I'm a white Christian. I'm a black Christian. He's like, don't ever do that. Don't ever do that. He says, don't make adjectives on a Christian. He says, don't say that. Say, I'm a, I'm a black Christian. I'm a white Christian. That's your primary identity. Let me just put it in simple terms. If you're a Christ follower, you have more in common with a Iranian Christian 
than you do with some members of your family who don't know Jesus. I'm a middle-aged white guy. I've got more in co- and grew up in Texas. I've got more in common with Daquan and Kari over at the West Asheville campus who grew up in L.A. who's half my age than I do with some family members I've got in Salem, Virginia. The point is what you have in common. You don't eliminate your race. We rejoice in the diversity. Just don't make it your main point of identification. You're a Christian first. You're a Christ follower first. And so let me just let me put this challenge and then we're going to be done. Is uh, you need to look out. This is where the this is where the hard part comes. Look out. Pursue expanding kind of who you are. Let me give you some ideas. Obviously it does mean relationships. When's the last time you had somebody at your table or even at a restaurant that didn't look just like you? I thank God there's a lot of different kinds of diversity. I mean, I'm looking around the room right now, and I see young, old, black, white, tattooed, untattooed, educated, uneducated, all different tax brackets. There's a whole bunch of diversity in some ways. But when is the last time you had a person of a different skin color at your table, at your home, or eating dinner with them at a restaurant? When's the last time? You're like, well, my, my whole neighborhood's white. I think that's really kind of telling us to maybe expand our neighborhood a little bit, all right? Maybe expand our sphere of influence, expand who our friends are. And so when you look at it, it's not just that. It's also, and by the way, if you're like, I don't, I don't know any people of color, then just take somebody on our staff and give them a gift card, okay? All right? Let me say it again. Just take somebody on our staff team and take them out to dinner. Probably the easiest person is probably Carlos because Carlos is single, so he didn't have a family, so he's got a lot of nights free. Take him out to dinner, right? Tell me about yourself. I'm compassionately curious. Tell me about how you grew up, just to expand. And if not that, here's a couple other ones. Just the input you have. Just read some stuff. Oh, by the way, hey, brothers and sisters of minority culture, please be patient with us because we're going to say some dumb stuff, all right? We'll... That's my only get. We're going to say some dumb stuff. I remember six, seven years ago when Marcus preached his first sermon here at the Arden Camp. Actually, yeah, we only had a couple campuses. But anyway, he preached his first sermon, and a dear, sweet, senior adult white lady came up after he preached. He's like, I just love, I, be, I love hearing black preaching. I was like, no, you did not just say that. I mean, that, but that's not racism, all right? Ignorance, maybe. Uh, awkward, definitely. Uh, but it's just dumb, all right? So be patient with us. And if you're kind of one of the pioneers here that helped us uh, start reaching people, then th- thank you for taking, it's not easy, all right? So thank you, but be, be patient. You can go ahead and clap for that one, all right? Give a good clap. But thank you uh, for that. Uh, read some stuff outside. Read, uh, and I'll put these on the website tomorrow on the resources. Read Letters from the Birmingham Jail by Martin Luther King. It takes you about 45 minutes. You can download it. You're like, well, I don't like some of the stuff he said. Fine, I don't like some of the stuff I say, all right? So just read. It's okay. Read it. It'll help you, all right? It will help you just get a better perspective, a different perspective. There's another one, The Warmth of Other Suns. It's actually on my, it's going to be something I'm, I'm about to read. I hadn't read it, but it's about the great migration that occurred over about an 80 to 100 year period of African Americans out of the Jim Crow South and how they went along the rail lines to like Los Angeles and Chicago and New York and all these different places, which actually even shows up now in the demographics around our country. Uh, You can read Woke Church if you want a short one by a guy named Eric Mason, a pastor we had at the pastor's conference way back there in 2014. 
All right, you can read a secular book called, I can't remember the author right now, but it's like, why are all the black kids sitting alone in the cafeteria? Just read that, all right? Just read it. Connect groups. I mentioned this a couple years ago. Connect group, all right? Take one, take one connect group in the next month or so, and especially if you're in the home, just watch, watch the movie Selma. Just watch the movie Selma, and then talk about it. Talk about how the church did some decent things and how the church also sat on the sidelines way too much as well. Just talk about it. And um, parents, I mean, they're going to take your clue from you. Make sure your kids are exposed to somebody, somebody besides people who look just like you. I mean, thank God for sports. Sometimes that does it, sometimes it doesn't. But you need to be intentional about it, especially here in WNC. Here's what I want you to think about. We sang a song a few minutes ago called The Power of the Cross. We're going to sing that thing again sometime, all right? The Power of the Cross, The Power of the Cross. Where I heard that for the, probably the second time, about a month ago, I'm in London, England, talking with that church plant that we're helping with. And I'm at a church in the middle of downtown London at a church uh, at Langley Place. I mean, you're right in the middle of downtown London. And man, that was the way the service closed. I'm like, that is amazing, that song. I hadn't heard it in so long. But what was so amazing is I'm sitting in this chair and the balcony is full and the floor is full. It's one of the few Bible teaching churches still there in London. It's 2% Christian. What's amazing is being a 2% Christian, I looked around there, and it's, you had black, you had white, you had Indian, you had old, you had young, and they're all singing about the power of the Christ. Because when you're 2% Christian, you're not messing around and fiddling around and being separated over your skin pigmentation, all right? You were together. Why? Because they understood my identity in Christ. That's the foremost identity point for me. And so here's the deal, church. We can't change everybody, but it's amazing. You and I repent personally, and then it can change that connect group, and then the connect groups change, and then churches change, and then cities change, and regions change, and then countries change. 